The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. every part of our lives, and uh, looking at what does it mean to radiate Jesus, His love, His grace, His presence, His joy, uh, wherever we go. And so we're starting in March a series on looking at how that plays out at work. And so we've called this series Working With God, uh, and you'll kind of see the richness uh, of that phrase and what, what that kind of really means as we kind of unpack it as we move forward. And so I want us to actually really think about this. Uh, again, often we, we think of spiritual work as being what pastors do, you know, in the church. And we kind of have this divide between the sacred and the secular, um, spiritual stuff and then everything else. And many of us live like when we leave here, at the end of the service, we enter into a different bubble. And that is the bubble of kind of secular work, what I do. And it becomes kind of really disconnected from our faith. Um, I, I, would, I would say that many of us kind of think about our work as a drudgery or as a, as a thing that we have to endure, something that kind of we have to do. And we don't really see any great spiritual significance or value or dignity or worth in, in our work. And maybe for some of us, our work looks a little bit like or feels a little bit like this video clip. So have a look at that and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, very insightful. You know, sometimes work can feel like that, a, a futile kind of existence where we just kind of go through the motions day in, day out. It's kind of the same. It doesn't really have any meaning or significance. But the Bible actually says a lot of really interesting and provocative and confronting things about work. And I think as Christians, we've kind of drifted and absorbed and embraced a lot of our cultures thinking about work rather than being informed what the Bible actually says about work and thinking about the spiritual significance of what we do for the most part of our lives. I mean, for really, when you think about how many hours in a week you actually spend at work, that's probably the, the biggest chunk of your existence. And if we live that part of our lives as though that there was no spiritual value and significance, what a waste. Uh, one, one writer, a cultural writer, um, he was writing an article that was kind of based on the movie Sunshine Cleaning that some of you may have seen. And uh, he's a guy called Mark T. Newman. And this is what he said about, about work. If you can throw that up. Without any kind of transcendent ideal toward which we move, work becomes drudgery. 
the going through the motions activity that secures our daily bread. But when we recognize a value in our work that extends beyond the work itself and lends it meaning, then any respectable job becomes a source of spiritual fulfillment. Any respectable job becomes a source of fulfillment because we infuse it with meaning and value that is drawn from the Bible's revelation of what work is. And so this morning, as I kind of launch off this series, so we're going to spend the whole month of March looking at this idea of faith and work. And so this morning, I want to go back to the beginning and look at the theology of work and and look at this idea of the design of work, that we're kind of critiquing what our culture's mindset and thinking is on work and actually asking ourselves, how did God create work to be? You know, what was the original design and the original intention that God had for work? And so if we can put just the the title slide. And I want us to kind of engage with this question that Ben kind of flagged last week. He got us to be thinking about this idea that we went to live this questionable life, and not in terms of being dodgy, but in terms of living our lives in a countercultural way that kind of pushes against our culture, and that is kind of living by different values so that people around us will go, why do you live that way? And, and want to ask and engage with you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And so I want to suggest to you that being a Christian at work and radiating Jesus in your workplace is not just about witnessing to your colleagues and your coworkers, though it may involve that. It's a lot more than running a Bible study group or a prayer group, though it may involve that. It's something to do with the way you work, how you work. And as a Christian your worldview and your value system being, being significant in shaping how you do your work. And so that's what we want to uh, engage with. What does it mean to radiate Jesus in your workplace? How does that look and how does that play out? And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis, we're going to kind of do a bit of biblical kind of theology, looking at the theology of work as unpacked in the beginning and how God kind of created this thing we, we kind of all know and all do. And, and wrestle with what does that look like for us today. And so when we go right back to the beginning of Genesis, we see some of these things. And the first thing I I want you to see is that the way God designed work right at the beginning is to be this this act of worship almost. And the the Bible kind of depicts work as being, uh, next one. Can you flip my slides in case I lose concentration? This idea that work was meant to be an act of worship somehow. And so when you go to Genesis 1, you you see that the first reference to work, any kind of work, is attributed not to humans, but to God Himself. And that is hugely significant. And we must constantly bring to mind that idea that before anything else, before we even work, God works. And God is at work. And we see in Genesis 1, verse 27, God created human beings in His own image. And so there's this idea that God is fashioning and making something. And then when we come to the account of God creating from the dust, He's like in the dirt, shaping humans. He's he's using physical energy to do work. And so God is creating. And then we come to verse 31, and it says, God saw that all that He had made, and it was very good. When you read chapters 1 and 2... When you put your work glasses on, you'll be staggered to see how many references there are to work language, to creating, to energy, to exertion of power, uh, all these work kind of ideas. And then when we get to chapter 2 and verse 2, 
listen to what it says. And the number of times work is mentioned. But the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So we see the, the first thing we come across in Genesis is this depiction of God who is exerting effortlessly, exerting energy and power to bring into being something that wasn't creating, making, producing, whatever you want to call it, the incredible, beautiful universe that we have. And then you get this picture of him kind of stepping back and going, wow, that's good. That's really good. And it's almost like this artist or, or this craftsman or a sculptor who kind of labors and works and creates this beautiful thing. And then he steps back and just enjoys and delights and revels in his work. That is the picture we get of God at work, delighting, enjoying, rejoicing in this thing called work. Now, can you go back, please? Oh, sorry, 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 worship. And so then when we get to humans, we see this. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God creates humans and then he gives them this commission and this calling to go and do like God. To create, to rule to reign. And so this idea that God has created humans with this thing called the image of God, the image of God in us, and part of that image of God is to work, is to work. And so when, when Adam and Eve are working, somehow they reflect the image of God. They reflect the glory of God. They're doing what their heavenly Father is doing. They're doing the same thing that their Creator is doing. And as they're doing that, they are worshiping Him. One of the, we've heard the saying, one of the best forms of flattery is impersonation or Im imitation. And there's this idea that as human beings discover this wonder of being created in the image of God and embrace work as being a way that we reflect the image of God, it is an act of worship to God. I remember when our kids were little, we have some really cute videos of this. Um, our kids used to like to pretend that they were Dash and me. You know, we've got a boy and a girl, and our son is the older. And so they would, from time to time, get dressed up in our clothes. They'd put on my blazer and tie, and Micah would wear these big shoes, my shoes. And, and uh, Ebony would put on Dash's heels and her clothes, and they'd be walking around the house. And there was this one video we got where Ebony's on the phone, and she's pretending she's talking like Dash and, you know, doing some kind of pastoral stuff. And go, no, 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 you need to just pray. And, you know, like she's doing all this stuff. And, and then another time, they decided they were going to do this drama this show for us, and they wanted to recreate a church service. And so we had to be the congregation. They were the, the preachers. And so th they took it in turn to kind of open the Bible and kind of preach, and it was crazy stuff. And the highlight was the altar call. And so they had prayer ministry. And so, you know, we had to respond. And we were like, no, 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 you must respond. Okay, okay. And so, so we came forward, and they're going, kneel, okay, all right, okay. You know, and, uh, and they're laying hands on us and casting out all kinds of things and praying for these rebellious children and that God would save them. And I'm like, why? Is that, is that what we sound like? It was, 
And it was just so funny kind of going, oh, my goodness, that's, that's, that's me. That, that's like a reflection of who we are. And, and it was kind of flattering. Going, okay, wow, that, um, our kids are just like me. You know, like they, if, if we're going to complain to anyone about our kids, it's, it's us. It's like, you know, they're just imitating and copying what they, they know and they see. And that's kind of how God sees us. When we work, God goes, that, that's my kid. You know, he's working just like me. He's cre- creating and he's producing and he's using his mind and he's using his strength and he's, he's using his hands and he's using the things I've given him to do just like me. And it pleases the Father and it honors him and he celebrates in it and he revels in it because it's just like him. And we reflect the image of God as worship to him when we work. The second thing we see so powerfully depicted in, in Genesis is this idea that work is partnership. That, that you know, work is somehow something we do with God, and hence our you know, series title, Working With God. And again, this is so different to the many of the other creation stories and creation myths in the culture of the Bible at the time when this was written. And so Genesis 1 is written as what they call a polemic, which is meant to be a corrective or a critique of a lot of the other cultural stories that were around at the time. And in some of those cultural stories, creation came into being because the gods were kind of at war with each other, and humans were the byproduct of that battle and that struggle. And Moses writes and goes, no, 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 that's not how it was. God created humans as the high point in his creation story. And the the way it's written in Genesis 1 is a poem that gets more and more intense as it gets to the creation of humans. And then when it gets to the creation of humans, it's like this song that breaks out and goes, this is it. This is the high point of God's creation. And everything was the precursor to get to this point. Everything else was the preparation for the perfect environment to put the crown of God's creation into the garden. Another creation myth at the, at the time said that the gods created humans because the gods were lazy and they didn't want to do any work. And so they came up with this idea, let's create humans, make them our slaves, and let's just give them all the things that we don't want to do. That is not the picture the Bible shows. We've already seen that the first account of work is God at work. And as we move along, we see that God now calls Adam and Eve. He commissions them. He gives them a trust, a responsibility to continue his work in creation. It's this idea of partnership, of doing what God's doing, but now even God continuing to do what he wants to do in the world through you, through me, through Adam and through Eve. And this is, again, beautifully communicated. Look at Genesis 2 verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth. So there's something that God hasn't done yet. And there was no one to work the ground. And so so we see this idea that God is still waiting to do something because humans haven't gotten there yet to do what they need to do to bring that about. And then God goes on to give Adam and Eve this dual responsibility, this dual task. And one of them is to till the ground. The Lord took uh, the man and put him in the garden, verse 15, in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded man, you are free to eat from any tree, etc. And the the Bible says in verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So God calls Adam and says, I want you to work the ground. I want you to till the ground. I want you to take care of this garden that I've made. 
So we see this partnership. God's made the garden, and Adam and Eve are entrusted with the responsibility of now taking care of the garden and being stewards of the garden and tending the garden and working the ground. And this partnership is formed between God and humans. And interestingly, the word used there for work the ground, toil the soil, is a word that carries the meaning of worship and serve. Worshipping and serving. That is how the Bible is portraying this relationship between Adam and Eve and God, the Creator. That it is a partnership. And as we work, we worship. As we work, we serve. And then notice in verses 19 onwards, God's giving them the second responsibility to name the animals. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground. See that? The Lord God had formed, worked out of the ground, all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, is that because God couldn't think of creative names for animals? I don't think so. But he wanted somehow Adam and Eve to be a part of his work in the world. And it says God did his bit. He created the animals. He formed them. He made them. He worked. And then he entrusted Adam and Eve with the next step of naming them. And we see this kind of unfolding where God is kind of appointing Adam and Eve, if you like, as vice regents, as these people with authority and stewardship and responsibility to work on God's behalf, in God's name, to fulfill God's purpose on the planet. It's kind of like the scene in in Narnia. I don't know if you've seen the first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan appoints the four human characters to be his regents. And he crowns them, and there's the coronation service, and there's all the pomp and regalia, and they come in, and they sit on these thrones, and he crowns them, and he entrusts them with the responsibility under his authority to rule on his behalf, to care for Narnia and to rule Narnia under his authority. C.S. Lewis was picking up this idea from Genesis 1 and 2, that when God created Adam and Eve, he entrusted, entrusted that responsibility to partner with him in the work that he was doing. And then we come to Genesis 3, and this is where it kind of all falls apart and all goes wrong. And we see that work is cursed, work is corrupted, work is kind of twisted up, and it it just changes radically from the intention that God had for it. And when we pick up in verse 17, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So a few things that we see that has happened to work. The first thing I want you to see is the very fact that God cursed work. That alone should show us the theological significance of work. That somehow this really central part of the image of God in us, God says, because you rebelled, because you disobeyed, now there's going to be something that's forever going to be twisted in this part of you. That's what it means to be human. And we see that now this idea that our work was somehow linked to our survival. Over and over again, God says, now it is through your work that you will survive. It is through your work that you will feed yourself. Next one, please. It is through work that you will be able to exist on the planet because that's the only way you're going to eat. But when you read Genesis 1 and 2, you get this picture that even our survival was a dual relationship between God and humans. God plants the garden. God gives them the trees. God provides the food. And Adam was meant to tend and care for it. Now God says, you're on your own. 
You're on your own. And now your work alone is going to be the necessity for your survival. If you don't work, you will die. You won't eat. So it's become linked to our survival. And the other thing we see in Genesis 3 is this idea of pain and toil and hardship and thorns and thistles. And that's something we all know what it's like. We all experience that in our work. It's hard. It's frustrating. It's disappointing. It's painful. It's discouraging. And God says that's how it's going to be. It's being cursed. And now the ground itself will not cooperate with you. It will resist you. And as the story unfolds, we see this curse rolling out in other ways that corrupt work. When we get to chapter 4, there's the, 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 the account of the descendants of Cain and Abel. And it's one of those bits that often we gloss over. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And, you know, this family history that gets rolled out. But when we skip those bits, we miss something. And what we miss is at the end, there's a shift. It starts off by talking about who's related to who and who's related to who. But when we get to the end of the chapter, we see now that people are being defined by their job. It says, you know, towards the end, uh, verse, 20, uh, verse 20, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze. Tubal Cain's sister was Neymar. And, and this idea that now our work becomes part of our identity. It kind of, this corruption has crept in and now work is wrapped up with, with something more than just being something we do to serve God. It, it kind of feels like it's a part of our identity. I'm sure you've experienced this when you're in social gatherings and, you know, when you're having a barbecue and whatever, you're meeting someone new. What is one of the first questions we tend to ask people? What do you do? Why is that? Well, I want to suggest to you that it's Genesis 3 rolling out where somehow we've now kind of attached who we are as people our identity, our value, our meaning, our significance to what we do. The fourth thing I see rolling out is that by the time we get to Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel, work has become a way for us to be independent of God. It's this idea of autonomy, of self-direction, of, of work has become something that gives me power and control. And so in that account, we see that humans are making bricks. They're building a tower. They're all work language. And they're saying, we're going to reach to God. We're going to get up to heaven. We're going to make ourselves God because we don't need God anymore. We are together and together through our industry, we can replace God. We can meet our own needs now. And it becomes this power, this autonomy, this independence is also becomes really connected with how we work. And again, we see that. When, when, you, when you're out and maybe when you're talking to people about Jesus, people will say stuff like, I, I don't need Jesus. I've got a great life. I've got a great job. You know, I've got all the money I need. And it's, it's become this thing that doesn't, uh, that gives us the opportunity not to need God. Work is what we look to to provide our needs. Work is the, the place we go to, to to find security and confidence. Work is the place that gives us the money we need to get whatever we want. We don't need to look to our Heavenly Father anymore because our work, our hands, our strength, our intellect, our training, our um, expertise, our education can do everything we want it to do. It gives us autonomy, control, power. But that's not how it was meant to be. 
And so we see this corruption of work kind of playing out in two main ways, and they're opposite ends of a spectrum. And, and, and as I talk about them, you'll, you'll probably see yourself somewhere in the spectrum, or you'll know somebody after the first service. I had so many people come up to me and says, said, oh, man, I have a friend who really needs to hear that because they're over here, or I have a friend who, you know, that would really encourage them because they're over here. Most people fall somewhere in this spectrum, and I've called these the, the two eyes of work that we are to beware and they are in opposite ends of this spectrum. On the one end, you have the eye of idleness. The eye of idleness. So you see, because work has been cursed, because work is corrupted, and because it is hard, and because it is painful and frustrating and difficult, oftentimes we want to avoid work. We want to escape work. We want to not go to work. And again, as you look around our culture, particularly in Australian culture, there's this bludging culture that's there. Even when you're, you're at work, you just do the bare minimum. You just do what you need to do, and you just get out of there. And if you take a sickie every now and again because you really don't want to go to work, yeah, that's okay. And you know, we, we look at people who've stored up lots of sickies, and we go, what is wrong with you? You know, and people who kind of store up leave, we go, what is the matter? Like, and, and the dream is what? To earn enough money to retire at 40 or something like that. You know? And we have all these get-rich schemes, and that's what the promise is. If you do this, you can retire young. But then what? If, if God has created us to work and some part of us is tied into the image of God that works, then idleness is not something that we should be seeking. See, our society kind of knows this. You know, the, the statistics for people who are long-term unemployed in how it affects their sense of value and purpose and meaning, and particularly with men, Men who are long-term unemployed really struggle with their identity. And there's huge depression and huge suicide statistics of men who are long-term unemployed. Something breaks inside of you. Something goes wrong. I want to suggest to you it's because God's created us to work. And when we don't and when we seek idleness and we seek to get out of work and we seek to avoid work and we seek to bludge or take the easy way out, something inside of us starts to fall apart. You know, there was a story told about uh, an aqueduct that the Romans built in, I think, 194 AD or something like that. It was built in Sergio in Spain, and it was designed to bring water from the mountains down into the city. And this aqueduct was so good that it, it functioned for about 2,000 years. It just provided the water and kept bringing the water in. And, you know, after a long time... A generation of people kind of looked at this thing and said, well, this is a marvel of Roman engineering and technology. This is amazing. We, we shouldn't lose this. Let, let's protect it. Let's kind of find a way to, to make it like a, a museum that the future generations will be able to come and look at and go, wow, this is amazing. So what they did was they built an alternate supply source. They laid down pipes and, and they, you know, tapped, you know, the water in the springs and, and brought the water down from the mountains to the city through, you know, pipes. But what began to happen is that as the water in the aqueduct dried up and stopped flowing, the sun beat down on that aqueduct and the bricks got really hard and the mortar got really brittle and it started to crumble and started to fall apart. And, you know, historians kind of observe that this thing survived about 1,800 years of service. But the moment it was retired and rested, it began to crumble and fall apart. How true is that of our humanity? 
You know, so many people struggle with retirement when they retire too early and they've got nothing else to do, to go to, to volunteer. And that's why, you know, finding things to do when you've retired, when you stopped working to avoid idleness becomes so, so powerful. The corrective to this in the gospel is in, in, in the commandment God gave to rest, ironically. And in Exodus 20, God gives us the corrective to idleness. In Exodus 20, verses 8 following, it says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Listen to what it says. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. And when you jump down to verse, verse 11, God gives the reason. He says this, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. What's God saying? God's saying to the people of Israel, work hard. Why? Because I worked. The reason that God gives the children of Israel to work and rest is to imitate His creative work. That is the corrective. As we kind of, as Christians who follow Christ and who submit to the Lordship of Christ, we, we can't buy into our culture's pressure to be idle because God says, that's not what I did. And if you want to worship me and acknowledge me as God of your life, then you need to imitate me. You need to follow my example. And so we see in the Gospels, we see Jesus talking about his work. Jesus talking about his ministry and ultimately his death and resurrection on the cross as being the work that God had commissioned him to do. We, we hear Jesus using language like, I am here to do the work my Father has entrusted me. I am here to do only what I see the Father doing. And ultimately, that is culminated in his death on the cross, which is why when Jesus said, it is finished, he was talking about his work. And he's saying, I'm done. It's Sabbath time now. I can down tools and I can go home because the work that the Father has entrusted me, the work I was given to do is done. And in Hebrews 12, the writer says, do you think that that work was easy? Do you think the work was, and we see in the garden, Jesus wrestling like many of us do. Man, do I really want to do this job? It's hard. And he looks at that cup and the father shows him the cup and gives him a glimpse of what is to come. And what does Jesus say? Not my will, but yours. He stares full face into the agony and the pain and the darkness that was just ahead of him. And he says, Father, I am here to do your work. So the writer of the Hebrews can say in chapter 12, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Friends, I want to tell you bad news today. Your work is not going to get any easier till Jesus comes back. There's going to be days when it's going to really suck and it's going to be painful and frustrating and it's going to be exhausting. And, we, and you know, as a pastor, I don't get a free pass in this either. I know you find that very hard to believe. Because you think that being a pastor is a dream job. You, know, you get Mondays off. You get to pray and read the Bible all the time. You know, like, wow, what a great job this is. But let me tell you, I get to work with you guys. And that's not always a barrel of laughs, let me tell you. And there are days when I go, do I really want to go to church today and see those people now? But it is, it, every job is hard because of the curse of Genesis 3. But the way the gospel corrects that, is to tell us, look to Jesus. When we understand what Jesus endured for us, His work, that was full of pain, full of hardship, full of difficulty, and yet He drank the cup down to its dregs. Which is why the New Testament writers like Paul can remind us 
In Ephesians 6, Paul says this, when you go to work, don't think you're working for the man. Don't think you're working for your boss. The real boss you're working for, if you can throw those up, please. Ephesians 6. Jesus, um, Paul says, look to Jesus. No, the one before that. That one. Serve wholeheartedly. Wholehearted, with your whole heart. Give it everything. As if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord is the one who will reward you for whatever good you do, whether you're a slave or free. You're not working for the boss. You're not working for your company. Yeah, you are. But that's not who you're supposed to keep in mind that you're working for. Look to Jesus. Because when you look to Jesus and you see that He's your master and He's given you the example to follow, just like Genesis, God says, work that way because I work. Jesus says, work like I worked. Keep your eyes on me and work to serve me, to honor me, to worship me in my work. Colossians 3, Paul says something very similar. He says this, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Same kind of idea. Give it everything, 100%. Don't buy into the idleness of your culture. Don't buy into the bludging culture. Don't buy into avoiding work and taking the easy way out and, and taking sick days when you're not sick and, and uh, aiming to retire. Don't, don't buy into that culture. Work with everything you've got because, again, you, you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward because you are working for the Lord. That's who you're working for. Never lose sight of that. Idleness. Okay. The other extreme is the other eye. And this eye is idolatry. Idolatry. And again, we've seen how this has played out in Genesis. We see how it rolls out from Genesis 3 onwards, where people's identity and value and meaning and purpose is kind of tied into their work. And the Bible says, as Christians, that's a cultural norm that we are to resist as well. We should stay away from that one as well. And work should never become an idol. And, and, and we've got to realize that we don't need to be a slave to our bosses. And Tim Keller, who writes a lot about work, he said this. If you can throw that up. Tim Keller said, observe, nope, that one. Anyone who cannot obey God's command to observe the Sabbath is a slave, whether it is to your own heart, to our materialistic culture, an exploitative organization, your culture's expectations, your family's hopes, or even your own insecurities. Even your own insecurities. He said, if you can't stop, if you can't take a Sabbath, all you're proving is that you're a slave. You're a slave. And so the corrective to this comes in Deuteronomy 5, where again, God is giving the command of Sabbath. But I want you to see the difference that, that happens in this passage. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Deuteronomy 5 verse 12. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Same as Exodus. But here's the difference. Verse 15. The reason God says you are to do that, to rest, to take a Sabbath, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God has brought you out there, out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This is the difference. God's saying, as my people, remember, you're not a slave anymore. Because of Christ, because of what Jesus has done, Romans 8 says, you are no longer slaves. You are now children of God, and we can cry out, Abba, Father. And, and Paul says, so why are you going back to being a slave again? You're free. And the gospel brings that corrective because, again, it reminds us what Jesus did for us. You see, when Jesus said it is finished, he's saying you can now know Sabbath rest because I have finished the work. 
You don't need to keep working anymore. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to unpack what it means for us that Jesus has become our Sabbath rest. What he says is this. You no longer have to work as a slave to prove yourself. You no longer have to work to gain some sense of dignity and value and worth. You no longer have to work to establish your identity and be the man or be the woman and be who you are. Why? Because of what God has done in Christ already gives you all of that in Christ. You are loved. You are valued. You are affirmed. Your identity is all in Christ. And because of that, you don't need to be a slave to work anymore. You don't need to prove anything to anyone. You don't need to earn anything with God. You don't need to pay a debt that you can never pay anyway. You don't need to be a slave and be driven by all your insecurities and all your brokenness because in Christ, that's been redeemed. And you can be free. And that's why the Bible says we are no longer slaves. And so we don't need to see work as as an idol that we must bow to and worship and and follow and, and be a slave to. And that's why Deuteronomy can say, you can take a day off. You can rest. You can know Sabbath because you're not a slave anymore. And the very fact that you are able to not be driven by your work is going to be a proof that you know that you are free in Jesus. So how do we radiate Jesus? Well, yeah, we can radiate Jesus by sharing the good news with our workmates. Absolutely. We can radiate Jesus by running a a Bible study or a prayer group in our workplace. Absolutely. But it's much more than that. We radiate Jesus when we push against our culture's values, when we push against idleness. And we say, you know what? As a Christian, I'm not going to be a bludger. As a Christian, I'm not going to buy into that culture. I'm going to push against that because my Bible tells me that I reflect my Father and I reflect and honor and worship Jesus by imitating Him when I work hard, even in spite of difficult, hard, challenging, painful, frustrating circumstances. But over here, I'm never going to be a slave to work. Just because I work hard doesn't mean I'm a slave. I'm not going to see my work as a God that I must worship to and give everything to. I'm not going to see my work as the means of my survival. I'm not going to see my work as being autonomous and giving me independence and power. No, work is just a servant that enables me to worship my Lord and my Savior. Work just enables me to, to stand assured and remember that it is an act of serving and partnering with God. And so I'm never going to see my job as my master because I'm free because Jesus died for me, because Jesus has shown me that the love of the Father is guaranteed. The, the identity I have, the value I have, the dignity I have is not in my job, it's in Christ. And so I'm free. It's as we live these values out, it's, it's as we reflect these things to our world that people will say, why do you live that way? Tell me more, because that's really different. Because I know plenty of people in this office, in this workplace, who are bludgers. What is it about you that brings you here? You turn up on time, you work hard, you do your best, you give your all, even though your boss rides you, even though your team doesn't appreciate you, even though this is a dead-end job. Man, you just give 100% all the time. What is that? Who does that? Why do you do that? And then over here, you know, where all your workmates, you know, they're working 24-7. They're just working, working, working. And you are known as someone who knows how to stop well 
who knows how to rest, who knows how to work, you do take your leave and you do rest and you do replenish so that you can come back more switched on, more alert, more clear-headed, more physically energized and charged, ready to go hard again because you've rested well. You're not going to buy into all these carrots that they dangle in front of you because you are trusting your heavenly Father to provide for you. You're not going to rely on, on the man providing your paycheck as though that was your survival because you know that Jesus said nothing can separate you from my love. And if you seek first the kingdom, I'll look after you. I'll take care of you. And you live out of that confidence. And you go, what? My job is not my master. Jesus is. And it's as you live that way, people go, man, what, what is this hope you have? What is this confidence you have? Why are you able to stand true to your convictions? Even when your boss is saying to you, I want you to bend the r- rules a little and, and kind of cheat a little. And you say, no, I'm not going to do that. And even if it means it's going to cost me my job, I'm going to stand for Christ. Not because I'm arrogant, not because I'm proud, but because my job is not my God. Jesus is. And he's going to take care of me as I stand for what he believes in. That's how we radiate Jesus in our workplace. As we know the design and the purpose of work and how as Christians we're called to live in our workplace. Why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes, and just take a moment to reflect, to consider, to think about your workplace, to think about what it means for you to be a Christian in your workplace. How have you been doing that? Have you been doing that? What does that look like? What's God speaking to you about? What's God putting on your heart? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for our jobs. We thank you, Lord, that you've gifted us, given us talents and education, given us skills to do work. And God, I pray for each of us that as we go to our workplace, that we would carry with us a different mindset. Father, that we would not buy into our cultures thinking about work. Yes, Lord, it is hard. And it is frustrating. and Sometimes we just want to get out. And there might be a time and a reason to do that. But Lord, I pray, will you help us to keep Jesus in focus. That we will set our eyes on him and his example and seek to emulate, imitate, and to work for him. And to be wholehearted and to work hard and to push against our culture's norm of idleness. But God, I pray that as we give ourselves to our jobs and we work hard, Lord, may it never become an idol. May we never look to our jobs to replace you as our heavenly Father. God, I pray that you'll guard our hearts against compromise. Guard Guard our hearts against overwork. Guard our hearts from coming to rely on our jobs instead of trusting in you. God, I pray that as we go to work tomorrow, May we go with a different attitude and a different mindset so that we can radiate the love and the grace 
and the wisdom and the power and the glory of Jesus in our work. We pray your blessing will rest and abide on us as we go, Lord, not into another bubble, not into the secular, but into a world where you are the Lord of church and work and family and everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like prayer, if you particularly struggling in your work, in your workplace, and you just like prayer, we'd love to pray with you this, this afternoon uh, or any other needs that you might have.